0: but I'm excited to talk to you today about pure devotion. Pastor Johnny initiated a series and it's basically talking about our first love. And there are two words that he's been tossing around and sharing with us for a few weeks. They're the words clarity and trust. They are opposing words, clarity and trust. And we like to, when we talk about trust, that's our word kind of for faith, because that's really what faith is. It's trusting in the faithfulness of God. Clarity is, of course, that thing that we look for all the time. We want to know everything that's coming. We would like God to show us every step of the way and so on. And uh, so if you've served God for for very long, you've probably learned by now that when it comes to giving details, giving information concerning our future, He's really skimpy with that stuff. Do you, did you find that out yet? He doesn't tell us a lot. He may speak to us prophetically, we may get excited about a prophetic word or what, what God is going to do, but then there's a process that he doesn't tell you. when he gives prophetic words, he leaves so many good details out, details that would help us if we just knew. But the whole idea is that he wants us to walk in trust. He wants us to walk by faith. So Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, when he was called, he went out not knowing where he was going. The great man of faith, the the man who trusted God perhaps more than anyone in the Scripture other than Jesus, the great man went out to fulfill his destiny and didn't even know where he was going. And you know that's been the story of my life. I think certainly the story of my ministry. Just go out and. You don't know where you're going, but God is always faithful and trustworthy. So the heroes of our faith never had clarity. And really, God, God is not pleased by our, our, this desire that we have to know everything that's coming. And so he calls us in this series here to get back to our first love. And I'm using the phrase pure devotion today. It comes out of the text that I want to read for us today. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a little bit of a lengthy text, but I want to set up the context of what's going on here. The Apostle Paul's writing to a church that he birthed. He founded the church. He was the father of the church. He was away uh, ministering in other places, and all kinds of reports started coming back to him about some of the wacky stuff that was going on in his church. And he was, he was invested here, He had poured his life out for these people. And so he's upset. And you'll catch that in his tone. He says in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. In other words, get ready, guys. I'm going to act foolish for a little bit right here. Please put up with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. So that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit, small s, from the spirit, capital S, you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, You put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least bit inferior to these super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I actually robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia gave me what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I'll continue to do that. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. And I'll keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things about they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, Their end will be what their actions deserve. Father, let your word speak very clearly to our hearts here today. I pray that that our hearts would be good ground as the seed falls upon it, that it would spring up and be watered in the days ahead and produce fruit for your glory. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to do for us what we are incapable of doing ourselves, and that is to give us revelation, understanding of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to focus on verses two and three, but before I do, I want to set the stage for what's going on in those verses. What happened in Corinth was that the Judaizers came. Now, you've heard us talk a lot about the Judaizers. They were the arch enemy of the early church, There was not a greater enemy than the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were comprised of some Pharisees and others, who, some of whom came to Christ, others of whom really didn't have a genuine conversion. But they were putting pressure on the church constantly to follow the law of Moses. They were taking them back into the Old Testament patterns. And so they were basically Jews who came into the church and tried to marry Judaism with Christianity. They wanted to make sure that all the people kept the laws and followed the, the dietary laws and so on. And there are major sections of Paul's writings that are written to address the errors of the Judaizers. They, they preached Jesus plus. Don't ever listen to anyone who preaches Jesus Plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus dietary laws. Jesus plus all the laws of Moses. Paul said that is another gospel. In fact, Paul said they're not even preaching about Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says they are preaching another Jesus, not the one who saved you, not the one you were introduced to. It's another Jesus altogether. And they came in as, as apostolic big shots while Paul was away. They belittled Paul's character. They said that his teaching was insufficient because it didn't include the law of Moses. And when Paul heard the report, he was really upset because all of the work that he had done in Corinth, and it was not an easy road there, all of the work he had done was being undermined. So he wrote 2 Corinthians because he couldn't be there in person to defend himself. So that's why you are seeing in the tone of the text that I read a defensiveness in the, in the heart of the apostle. And he says in, in verse 1, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, put up with me. Paul, Paul is saying that the bragging of these false apostles is so ridiculous that he said, I want you to just humor me. Let me give you a chance to give you my pedigree, and he goes on later in Corinthians, and he tells all the things that he did, and people look at that and say, well, Paul was bragging." No, Paul was was saying, okay, these guys want to talk about being a big shot. Let me give you my credentials here. In other words, put up a little bit with my foolishness. I'm going to act like them for a little while. Two people can play this game. And so he makes some very strong accusations against these Judaizers, telling them that they're preaching another Jesus and another gospel. He mocks their claim to be what Paul calls, uh, tongue-in-cheek, super apostles, he calls them, uh, as a joke. And then he defends himself from financial accusations, uh, reminding him the, the Corinthians that he never took a dime from them that the money that he used to live on in Corinth was provided by Christians from other communities outside of Corinth. And so finally, he puts the hammer down, and he he calls these false apostles. He says they are false apostles, deceitful workers. They are masquerading as apostles of Christ. And he says Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So it shouldn't surprise you that these false apostles are masquerading as servants of righteousness. And he says, they're going to get what they deserve. God will make sure they get what they deserve. And so Paul, as he's seeing all this work unraveled, with this backdrop, he he moves into verses 2 and 3, which is where I want our focus to be today, because it's the central part of this passage outside of the context here. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I have promised you to one husband, that is to Christ, so that I may present you a pure virgin to him. Now the first picture that Paul is giving us here is of a father's jealousy over his daughter. Paul looks at the church as though the church was his daughter. And he says, as a father, I have a jealousy. I want to make sure that I am able to present this church to Jesus as a pure virgin. I don't want this church to be polluted by all of the things of the world. I don't want this church to look like the world and act like the world and follow the the moral standards of the world. I want this church to be different. So Paul is passionately pleading as a father here. I want to walk you down the aisle as a pure bride. And he's her father. He promised her hand in marriage to Christ. And so he says, I'm jealous over you. This word jealousy is a very interesting one because we think of jealousy as a very negative thing. As Christians even, we think jealousy is very negative. But I want to tell you most often when the word jealousy is used in the Bible, it's a good thing. Most often. Now it does address the kind of jealousy that we talk about between people and that hurts relationships and so on. But most of what the scripture says about jealousy is is a good thing. Jealousy is being possessive. You'll see this definition here. Being possessive of something that is rightfully yours. God actually speaks of himself as a jealous God. In fact, when, he, when the Ten Commandments were given out in the book of Exodus, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I am a jealous God. And then in another passage, he says, my name is is Jealous. Did you ever hear that name given for God, Jehovah Jealous? But that really is one of his names. He said, my name is Jealous. And what that is, it is this possessiveness that God has because we are his creation. This possessiveness, not an evil possessiveness at all, to to claim something that is rightfully his. And that's why he tells us over and again, don't have any other gods before me. A jealous husband, and husbands to some degree, to a righteous degree, ought to be jealous of their wives. A jealous husband protects his wife, and he protects that covenant that they have. Envy is a word that we don't use as much today. We tend to use the word jealousy even when we describe envy, but it's different. Jealousy being possessive of something that is rightfully yours. Envy is the desire to possess something that is not rightfully yours. Envy is looking at something that belongs to someone else and saying, that belongs to me. The desire to possess something that isn't rightfully yours. Envy is always wrong. Jealousy is often right and justified. Now, Paul says, I'm jealous for you. And then he, he talks about what he's concerned with most, and that is in verse 3. But I am afraid, verse 3, that just as Eve deceived, was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I find it so interesting that Paul is taking this All the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he talks about the serpent's deception of Eve. Now, a lot of people mistakenly teach that that the fall in Eden was really Eve's fault. There's some male chauvinist theologians out there. And they want to blame all of the fall on on Eve. It was the woman uh, who was deceived. In fact, um Really, it says in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And they take that verse and they want to make it sound like the fall was Eve's fault. Well, you know, when, when they were standing there at the tree, and I'll read that in a little bit, the Bible says that her husband was with her. Eve was deceived by the enemy, slowly and subtly deceived by the enemy to take the fruit. Adam just took it. <laughs> Adam just willingly grabbed the fruit and ate it. He had, he had his mind made up. He didn't need to be tempted by the enemy. This, this, this desire to have that, just, he just went for it. Because the Bible says that when Eve took the fruit, she gave it to her husband who was with her. He was being a wimp. He wanted it all along. Uh, you go, He watched her eat it first and then she gave some to him, and he ate it. When the Bible talks about Adam uh, and the fall, what was caused by the fall, it does say Eve was deceived, but Adam simply made the choice. And the New Testament makes it clear that the human race dies in Adam. When Paul talks about sin and how it entered the world in his epistles as he's laying down his theology, especially in Romans, he says, Adam. Corrupted the human race, as in Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. And so, while they both uh, gave in, just Adam just went for it. So in Genesis three, here's what it says: Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" The woman said to the serpent, "We may eat fruit from." The tree's in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, Adam and Eve were living in a perfect garden paradise. God provided for them everything they need. All they needed to do was trust Him. And God said, There is one tree that I don't want you to eat of there in the middle of the garden there is that one tree, and I don't want you to eat it. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, the serpent today uses the same old strategy that he used with Eve, and that's why Paul is bringing Eve into the story here. He waits until Eve is alone, and then he begins to whisper. And this is what he does. There's a a pattern that Satan always follows, and I'll run you through it real quickly. Four steps. Satan, first of all, Satan questions God's Word. Notice his, his subtle strategy here. His first words were, were, did God say? Did God really say? And he does the same thing today. People wonder, is, is the Bible really the Word of God? Can the Bible be trusted? So, wherever God puts a period, the devil always puts a question mark. Think of it that way. When God says you shouldn't do this, period the devil brings a question mark. Well, what's wrong with that? What would be wrong with me indulging in that? What would be wrong with me living like that? And the question marks always come. That's the first thing, question about God's word. The second thing, Satan changes God's word. He said, didn't God say you, you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God never said that. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, just don't eat from this one, the one in the center. So he changes God's word, and he still does that. Attempts to misquote and change God's word. Then Satan denies God's word. Satan doesn't call God a liar at first. He plants the question in Eve's mind, and he he directly denies God by saying, "You're not going to die if you eat that fruit." God knows that in the day you eat of it, that you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So. Satan is calling God a liar. And finally, he replaces God's word. You will be like God if you eat the fruit. And you know, all temptation can be, can be taken back to this idea <clears throat> that we want to be God. Uh, pastor Johnny was telling in a, in a group of our pastor friends a few weeks ago, he, he used the phrase, and I've heard him use it before, you make a terrible God. My oh, yeah. God, you make a terrible God, and you do. Given, you know, if you are the one who determines what is good and what is evil, then you're going to be in trouble. But that's what Satan actually does. So, when 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 the temptation comes, the temptation is to be your own little God. Satan never asks Eve to worship him. He just put a thought in her mind that she could worship herself. Everybody worships. Even atheists worship. God doesn't believe in atheists. Atheists worship. They worship themselves. It is the God of self that is put on the throne of their lives. And so, God is saying, you can be your own little God. In other words, if you'll eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll have clarity. You won't need to trust anymore. You are going to have clarity. And that is what Paul warned the Corinthians of. Don't let your minds be corrupted from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now let me tell you why it's a terrible place to be to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I, I, I think it's so fascinating here as I, as I pondered that the last couple of weeks. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We think of it, I just wanna stretch your minds a little bit here. We think of it as the tree of the knowledge of evil. That's not what it says. It said it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we take that tree, and we are the ones who determine what is good and evil, we can get in trouble. Now, evil is pretty obvious for most Christians. The Bible says you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Both Old and New Testaments are, are replete with warnings and, and telling us things that we shouldn't do. And it's not because God's this... this, this God who just doesn't want us to have any fun, so he just says, gives us a list of stuff. No, when God tells you not to do something, there's a reason for it, and there's a good reason for it, and we do best to, to heed that. But the church, because of our fallenness, the church becomes experts on what is good and evil, and the church is really good at pointing out what is evil, in the world. And 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 there's a prophetic voice that the church has. There's a there's a time for the church to rise up and stand, but not this self-righteous thing that points to other people, other sinners and and you know decries their lifestyle and everything. Sinners I've said it a thousand times in this church. Sinners sin. That shouldn't shock anybody. That's what sinners do. That's why we call them sinners. Right? Sinners sin. And so We have this knowledge of what is evil, but the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And you know, when the church gets in a place where it becomes the determiner of what is good then, things can really get messed up. And that's exactly what Paul was dealing with here with these Judaizers. They were saying, we determine not only what is evil, we determine what is good, And what is good is for you to follow the law of Moses. What is good is for you to add circumcision. What is good is for you to follow the dietary laws. What is good is for you to to follow the peace. And so good is every bit as evil as evil. You know what I'm saying? It's, It's no matter, if you're standing, if you've eaten that fruit, you are standing as the judge of what is right and wrong. And so whether it's what you think is evil or what you think is good, it's evil in God's mind. God calls us to a trusting relationship with him. And this is what Paul is warning them of. He says, don't let your minds be corrupted from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The King James Bible uses the word simplicity. Don't let your minds be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The, the word for simplicity in the original means something that is single as opposed to double. Simplicity is not just, you know, oh, it's simple, you know, it's, a, it's simple, commonplace, whatever. No, simplicity is something that is single as opposed to double. And this is what Paul's saying here. It's not Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. It's not just adding Jesus to your life. What Satan fights is a life of pure devotion to Christ where everything revolves around our relationship with him. Choices, goals, conversations, agendas, relationship, everything centers around Christ. That's what this singleness of devotion means that Paul is calling them to. Another place that word simplicity is used and in the King James, it says here in Matthew 6 and verse 22, You'll recognize this. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, the light that is in you, if it becomes darkness, how great is that darkness? So what he's saying here, this, this is that same word, singleness, a purity of devotion, a single focus on the Lord. And Paul says to them, these Christians who had seen so much, they had, they had the gifts of the Spirit operating and, and they, 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 they worked, they did a lot of great things in their community. But Paul says, my fear for you, Is that you fall away from the simplicity, that single, pure devotion to Christ? Some people call it the one thing. I'm fearing that you're going to miss the one thing. And if your eye is single, that's your life, the entrance of life. If your eye is single, if your devotion is to Christ, your entire life will be. Filled with light. That's the message here. If your eye is dark, your whole life will be filled with darkness. And so, what Paul's calling us to, and what I'm calling us to today, is instead of the multiple, instead of the all the things that we we wrestle with trying to make priorities. And you may recall, it just popped into my mind years ago. We had. Um, a message, and I had guys come up here and stand across the stage. And we had signs, and they held signs, and they said, God, family, church, work, all that stuff. And I asked the congregation to put those in order. And everybody agreed that God was first, but there was a little disagreement about what came where and what went where uh, a little bit later. But that I, I tend to avoid all of that priority teaching. This is my life. You can do that if you want to do, but I tend to avoid that kind of priority thinking where I break my life down into categories and say, if, you know, this is good and this comes first and this is not as good, so it comes last. I, I just don't do that anymore because I think this verse removes the need for that. God wants us to have a singleness, a purity of devotion to Christ. And if we have that, everything else will fall in place. Sometimes the priority is the church. Sometimes the priority might be the family. It's all about, it's not, the whole idea is what is God saying about today? He wants us to walk in the Spirit. And I believe that this is how Jesus lived. He said, I only do, I only do what I see the Father doing. So life is about keeping our focus on Jesus and saying, what is the Father doing today? And the Father might be saying, listen, you've been hitting it hard. You need to take a rest. You need to just spend some time at home, spend some time with your family, whatever. Just listening to the Father is what the message is all about. And Paul said that he saw this deception coming, in the same way that Eve was deceived, he saw this deception slipping into the church. And he said, I'm jealous for you. And I want you to have a single, pure devotion to Christ. Do you remember when you first met Jesus? I do. Do you remember how Everything was about Him. His presence was so real. And it didn't take very long for us to get drawn into all the other stuff, all of the external things and the trappings. When your eye is single, when your focus is on Jesus, your whole life will be filled with light.